This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. Doing this intro solo today, Matt is deep in some experiments this week. Uh, He couldn't be here today, but he wanted to say that he'll be back for next episode and that he loves you all very much. Before we get to the interview, I just want to mention how thrilled we are that this podcast has been doing so well in the iTunes charts. We've been consistently in the top 100 science podcasts, and we even creep into the top 25 natural science podcasts from time to time. For a show that is independently run by a couple graduate students, this still blows my mind every time. I just want to say thanks to you all for listening, and a special thanks to you out there that have left us reviews on iTunes. We read them all, and they make us feel pretty great. On today's episode, I spoke with Dr. R.G. Hillis, a professor of neurology at Johns Hopkins University. Her work is focused on trying to understand how language and other cognitive behaviors are processed in the human brain. Being able to produce a spoken language is an extremely complex behavior that involves the coordination of many brain regions, and damage to any of these regions can cause problems. If a person experiences brain damage to areas involved in language production, such as during a stroke, a temporary or a permanent language disorder can develop. So, how can a stroke help us understand how language is formed? Here is Dr. Hillis's approach. A patient recently suffers a stroke. They are also experiencing some kind of acute language problems. So first what you want to do is identify the location of the injury in the brain and figure out the extent of the damage. And then, if the language problems recover over time, you can look and see if this is related to any recovery in the brain. These kinds of correlations can help us better understand the neural basis for language production, as well as help us understand how the brain recovers after an injury. In the interview, we also talked about Dr. Hillis' path to becoming a neuroscientist from a background in speech pathology, as well as what it was like having a childhood of traveling around the world with a family of scientifically minded people. Are you ready for it? Let's do it. R.G. Hillis, and I'm working at Johns Hopkins in the Department of Neurology. Maybe just to get everything going, it seems like your family has a history of scientists, or at least like medical professionals. Could we start just by talking about maybe where you grew up and maybe how that influenced your decision to maybe become a scientist? So 
My father was a physician and he started out doing epidemiology and basic science in virology. And he eventually went back to clinical medicine and did an internship and residency in his 40s and then switched gears again and went back to Baylor when I was in high school and uh, was chair of biology at Baylor University. My mother married young and had kids, so she had not finished college when we were little, and she went back to college when I started kindergarten. Now, my father's virology research was focused on hepatitis research. Um, so we lived in places all over the world that had hepatitis epidemics. So we lived in Congo in the 60s, in, in Leopoldville even, really? um, because there, were, uh, there was a lot of hepatitis. He had discovered that the chimpanzees and other monkeys were giving hepatitis to what we would now call hepatitis A to the workers. And so he realized they might make a good model for a vaccine, a primate model for a vaccine. So we had to go where there were chimpanzees yeah. and monkeys that had... had. Um, so how old were you and you moved to the So Congo? I was four and my brothers were five and six and eight. And from there we moved back to Louisiana eventually and lived in we lived in Baltimore for a while. We lived in India for a while. We moved back to Baltimore. My father did his resi his residency when I was in junior high at Hopkins. Mm -hmm. um, so I spent a lot of time at Hopkins <laughs> when I was young. My mom, she by that time had managed to finish college at various colleges all over the world and got her PhD at the School of Public Health at Hopkins and became a biostatistician in her had a faculty position at Hopkins. Well, what was going through your head at that point? Did you have some kind of uh, particular field that drew your interests? I had learned sign language, and I was doing some volunteer work with the deaf, so I wanted to become a speech pathologist to teach deaf children uh, to talk. Mm -hmm. um, so that was what I wanted to do. I think also my father really wanted me to be a physician. He had wanted at least one of his kids to be a physician. Just to be a chip off the old block. And <laughs> I had two brothers. Danny was always interested in computers and high tech, and he made his first computer in fourth grade. And it was clear he was going to go to MIT sort of from the time he was <laughs> five, you know. And he got into MIT and went there, and he studied artificial intelligence with Marvin Minsky, and he's still doing that. He's kind of a high-tech inventor. And David was always a scientist. In high school, he studied herpetology. He was president of the Maryland Herpetological Society and published his first paper in high school. Uh, first authored paper. <laughs> uh, sole authored oh, paper. Oh, that's thing. amazing. Um, and I used to do, I used to help him with his research, which involved you know, wandering around swamps, cutting toes off of some kind of amphibian, I can't even remember what it was, to watch their homing patterns. So it was fun to be around him. I always loved biology and science, and everything in our house was always hypothesis-driven research. You know, if we had any, you know, we said something, we had to prove it. Really? <laughs> My mother said once that bees know when you're looking at them. 
And so we said, yeah, we don't believe that. And she said, no, they really do. So we went down, we took a, I think back then there was no video camera. I think you had to have, you know, some kind of like movie camera. And we went down to the playground where there were a lot of bees around the trash cans. And we had a blinded experiment where she would watch the bees or she wouldn't watch the bees. And we would take movies and count, you know, the number of times the bees like moved to see if they could could tell when she was looking at them or not. What did you do? Bees don't know when you're looking at them. That's okay, the, yeah. the, <laughs> just in case you were wondering. But it, that. that's sort of how everything in our household was. You know, you just yeah. had everything you said. You had to to test the hypothesis wow. <laughs> with data. What did you do uh, college at? And I guess at that point, did you have something kind of like crafted as to what you wanted to study? Yeah, so then I went to George Washington University in D.C. and studied speech pathology. I was still going to teach kids, yeah. deaf kids to talk. But while I was there, I you have to do sort of clinical practicums. And I met an aphasic patient, patient with language problems, and she, it was fascinating. I just thought it was so interesting that she made so many interesting errors and she wasn't aware of it at all. She had no idea that she was kind of speaking in jargon. And and so I was fascinated by that. I also had a patient with right hemisphere stroke who just talked and talked and talked, but nothing she said was to the point. You could ask her a question. She would address your question, but not really answer it. So you could say, well, why were you in the hospital? Instead of saying, well, I had a stroke, she would say, well, you know, I was watching television and, you know, I really like TV. I like that show about the kids and the mother. And, you know, my husband doesn't like TV, but, you know, my husband's from Arkansas. And, oh, you know, we met when we were, and she'd get off on these tangents and she could never really communicate anything. And it was fascinating because you could never have a real conversation with her because she just wouldn't really answer what you asked (laughs) or get the point of a conversation. And it was fascinating. So I thought, you know, I want to work with adults with strokes um, because I find them so fascinating. So I did. I became a speech pathologist and worked with adults with strokes. And I did that for 10 years, actually. But always I wanted to do research. So I did research mostly on my own. I did therapy studies. I did studies of what kinds of deficits these patients have, how to evaluate them, very clinical studies. And I was at a conference once, and somebody from Hopkins in the cognitive science program said, well, why don't you, why don't you um, collaborate with me? You could collaborate with my graduate students, and mm-hmm. you'd have more productive research. So I started doing research with his lab, and it was more productive. It was, it was interesting. And there was something called the Mind Brain Institute at that time. Guy McCann was head of it, and it was a very multidisciplinary neuroscience research that they wanted to put in a program project grant looking at language in the brain. So I was asked to actually write one of the proposals to look at recovery of naming after stroke. And Had you done this before? or No. So I just got a lot of examples of grants and things and I, I wrote a proposal and got a lot of feedback on it and I thought you know this is really interesting I'd go every week to these meetings and all these neurologists and neuroscientists would talk about their research and how to evaluate it and and I said you know I really want to do what these guys do you know I want to see patients and do research the rest of my life Um, Mm -hmm. but I want to help them get better because they were just beginning to treat stroke with 
not TPA yet, but there was there were talk about neuroprotective agents and stroke, and you know I thought maybe it could help people better as a physician. And Guy McCann came to me and said after he read my proposal and said, you know, you're wasting your time. You should really go to medical school. I said, yeah, I thought about it a lot, but I also want to have kids. And, you know, I'm turning 30. I want to have children. And I can't, I don't think I can do both. I think I have to really decide. He said, yeah, you don't have to decide. Just do both. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. You know, everything will work out. There's never a good time to have kids. Just, just go for it. That's good advice. <laughs> so, so I did. I applied for medical school and got in at Hopkins. And it was interesting because it's the only place I applied because they didn't require the MCATs at that time. And I hadn't taken biology for 10, 15 years. And I also hadn't taken physics, physics and chemistry ever. and organic. <laughs> um, well, I had to take those things. They wouldn't let you in without. Yeah. So I did go back and take organic chemistry. And I took the second year of calculus. There were some things I had to take. And I was in the midst of taking physics. And I applied early for early acceptance because I was pregnant. And I knew I could only go there if I didn't take the MCATs. And I was taking physics. I figured, well, if I get into Hopkins by early acceptance, I, you know, I won't take, won't ever have to take the MCATs. And if not, I won't apply anywhere else this year anyway because I'll be very pregnant. And nobody's going to accept a very pregnant person. Sure. So I was like five months pregnant when I interviewed at Hopkins. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't really tell I was pregnant. And. Um, <laughs> They accepted me, so I never did take the MCATs. Nice. And now Hopkins requires them. I think I was like in that one window. No, <laughs> you know, didn't require them. And I also didn't ever There's take... probably no place that doesn't I never that. finished general physics, actually. Yeah. Um, because I, when I was accepted, I said, you know, do I have to finish general physics? I've taken physics of sound and music and, and astronomy and other physics courses. Mm. And they said, well, we'll call you back. <laughs> then they oh, called me back and said, "No, you can you can drop it." Nice. Okay, good. <laughs> it hasn't. And now I do MR research. You know, I could really use. But I work with a lot of physicists, so it's not so bad. <laughs> they help you out. Um, could you tell us about what exactly a stroke is? What kind of symptoms come from that? What are the ones that you're interested in? And then let's talk about the pathologies that uh, come about because of because of strokes, and especially from a language perspective. Sure. So there's two kinds of stroke. One of them is caused by occlusion of an artery. So you can either have a clot that occludes the artery and you can't get blood flow to the brain, or you can have atherosclerosis develop in the artery itself, in situ in the artery and close it off, and you don't get blood flow to the brain. But in either case, the problem, that's called an ischemic stroke, and the problem is that you just aren't getting enough blood flow. So the brain tissue beyond, that's supplied by that artery dies. And then the other type is hemorrhagic stroke, and that's when the blood vessel bursts, and there's blood all over. The tissue is dysfunctional in part because it's irritated by the blood, but also that vessel is no longer taking blood where it's supposed to go, again, to the areas it supplies. So the symptoms of a stroke really depend on which vessel is occluded or ruptured. And the ones that cause the most symptoms are and are the most common kinds of strokes are the middle cerebral artery. So if it's a left middle cerebral artery stroke, 
the, it usually causes language problems, at least in right-handed people. And there's two main branches of the left middle cerebral artery. The, the superior branch supplies the front part of the MCA territory. So that's like Broca's area. It's very important for speech articulation um, and formulating sentences. So people who have a clot in the superior division of the left MCA can't speak um, is their main problem. They understand pretty well what you're saying to them, but they... Is this a motor deficit or a cognitive deficit? It's motor planning primarily. It's something called a proxy of speech, so that they can produce sounds, but they can't get them in the right order, at the right timing. So yeah. if they want to say hurricane, they might say turkasane, turkasane, tornado. <laughs> um, so they know what they want to say. They even know what it sounds like, but they just can't okay. produce it. And then they also have trouble formulating a grammatical sentence. So they tend to have what we used to call telegraphic speech, but nobody sends telegrams anymore. But it's yeah. kind of like the old well, text, text message speech. speech. Okay, yeah. yeah. But more like the older text messages that when you had to like push a button several times to get the right letter so you'd, oh, yeah. you know you really only wanted to produce a few words because it was such a pain yeah. you know before I be there soon <laughs> well, I phones, still, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so there was a lot of come dinner six o'clock and that's okay. how they kind of talk and they do that in writing too so their writing is similar it's misspelled it leaves out the grammatical words they get the wrong endings on things okay. um, and if it's the inferior division of the middle cerebral artery, it can't supply things like Wernicke's area, superior temporal gyrus, and they have difficulty understanding what's said to them. And their speech sounds like jargon, kind of the word salad. They want to say, if they want to say, I'm coming to dinner at six o'clock, they might say, well, the thing I was, the, but that was just, and they aren't aware that they're making errors. So, they get frustrated with you if you don't respond appropriately. Yeah. Broca's aphasia have, get frustrated with themselves. Yeah, not being able Patients to... with Wernicke's aphasia get frustrated with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're the one with the problem. <laughs> I see. <laughs> How do you convince them that it... Or, yeah, what's the... You don't really. I mean, yeah. you, you just try to have patience and yeah. kind of through gestures and facial expressions, you kind of... Act confused. Say, and... I, I don't... I'm not, just not getting it. I'm sorry. Try okay. to look empathetic, and <laughs> and they they kind of get it. Eventually, get a sort of shallow awareness that they're not making sense. As a speech pathologist, once you've identified what kind of pathology they do have, what sort of treatments are effective? So, I mean, the main treatment is language therapy. So, a language therapist would work with somebody on there deficits, whatever they are, if it's a, a proxy of speech, the motor planning problem, then the focus is on how to produce the word correctly, and there's cues you can give them to help them produce the words correctly. If it's naming therapy, it's mostly trying to get them to produce the correct names. If it, you know it's comprehension, trying to get them to understand what words mean. Some of my research now is looking at ways to augment that, to make it more effective. So we use things like transcranial direct current stimulation, transcranial magnetic stimulation, even maybe medications can augment therapy. Yeah. Can we can we talk about the the, the transcranial magnetic stimulation? Like mm -hmm. has this been around for a while or is it fairly relatively new? And so they've been around a long time, particularly transcranial direct current stimulation 
has been used for really many years. It's sort of reemerged in the last decade. Um, it was used a long time ago, then kind of out of you know, not used because they didn't really understand how it worked. And then in the last decade or so, it's grown in popularity, not only as a rehabilitation, but also as a way of understanding how the brain works. Mm -hmm. um, so people do it in normal controls to help understand various systems. We're using it to augment language therapy, but people have used it to augment motor therapy or to treat depression, to treat all kinds of different things, mm -hmm. improve sleep, improve a lot of different things. The idea behind TDCS is that it changes membrane thresholds of excitability. So it doesn't actually cause action potentials, but it can make it more likely that that neuron will fire when it receives whatever stimulation mm -hmm. um, you give it. So if it's a neuron that fires in response to auditory stimulus and you have a task that has auditory stimuli in a language task and it's activated, that particular neuron is activated in this language task. The idea of LTP is that you do the task very often, you stimulate that neuron and it's going to be connected to other neurons in that network in such a way that, that the synaptic connection will be facilitated by firing more frequently. Mm -hmm. Well, TDCS does the same thing. It enhances LTP and LDP without making you go through so many rapid repetitions. Yeah, it augments the system. It, exactly. Keeps so it, yeah. all those connections become facilitated so that they fire in response to less does this, What does this look like? Is this like a, a system of kind of like, you know, electrodes on the brain? Or, on yeah, the skull? it looks like really non-impressive. So <laughs> you strap wet sponges under electrodes, yeah. one over one area and one over a control area. And yeah. it's just a tiny little, some of them look much more impressive. Yeah. Some of them are just, you know, it doesn't have to, it can be a tiny little box that yeah. has two wires, you know, going to these. Sure, so just sending out magnetic really, waves, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just one milliamp of electricity. It doesn't hurt. We do sham controlled studies. So you don't know if you're getting the real thing or not. And even the, we have a little sham box, so the person doing the stimulation doesn't know if it's real or sham either. Okay. But the way they do that is you can feel, they only feel it at the very beginning. You can feel the onset, like a little tingling. So when they're getting the sham condition, they feel a little tingling. You give them real stimulation, but just for a few seconds. Oh. So they get the tingling and then you turn it back off. Oh, so they funny. don't really get any more stimulation. <laughs> and for real stimulation, you continue it, but they don't feel it after the first yeah. few seconds. So it feels the same to them. Okay. I know that there's these, like, they're, they're starting to develop these things that you can put on your head. I saw these at a conference recently that if you just want a little more energy in your, you know, in your day or calm yourself down, you would strap on a little... Yes, you know, so there's stimulator. People, it's very controversial, um, but yeah. in some countries you can. I think you can even do it in the United States now. I would not try this at home myself, but um, <laughs> I'm not suggesting you do it. Yeah. Um, but I think there are FDA-approved devices, and I think it's for depression that it's approved. Yeah, I know you can do it at home yourself now. You can get one of these things because. The FDA approves devices, not the treatment. Yeah. So you can just buy this device and do as it as long as it doesn't like 
we, well, that's the thing. We don't know really. But right? it can. It does limit the amount of stimulation you can do. So it's yeah. not known to cause any problems if it's only one or two milliamps. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you went up really high, you could burn your scalp and things like that. So, <laughs> um, But nobody knows if you t- did it too much. Like what we do is 20 minutes during the first hour of language therapy. And we don't know if you did like hours of this that mm-hmm. people could, you know, people get kind of crazy and they think, yeah. well, if 20 minutes is good, three hours might be really good. Um, so maybe not. we don't know what would happen. Yeah. Okay. Um, maybe let's do a slightly maybe historical perspective of some of your mm-hmm. research. Like maybe to go a little bit back, you went to medical school then after, right? You went to Johns Hopkins. Right. Following that, did you, did you get a PhD too to do research or how does it work in that sense? No, I had done, like I said, a lot of research collaborative research before medical school. Okay. Um, so I didn't get a PhD. Um, so I just continued doing research by writing a grant proposal at the last year of my residency. So when it, it was funded so that when I was finished, I had a faculty position there. So I, it was 75% protected time for research. So I got oh, nice. to... Okay. And ever since then, I've been writing grants to keep that protected time for research. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I was wondering, so went to medical school, but then became a primary research yeah. oriented. Okay. So what was some of the, when you first set up your, your lab, what were the questions and what were some of the discoveries that you made? Well, that was, a, it was a really great time um, for me to doing residency because two things happened. TPA was um, approved to, when I was a resident to treat stroke. So it was the first real treatment for stroke besides sort of giving aspirin and hoping it doesn't happen again and rehabilitation. But to make, you know, in the acute stage, keeping brain tissue from going on to die. Um, So preventing the stroke from really happening. What was that Um, again? Could you say what it was? TPA, which is tissue plasminogen activator. So it's like a clot buster. Okay. Initially, we were just giving it intravenously. So if you put it in an IV, it was initially approved only in the first three hours of stroke. Now it's approved for four and a half hours after stroke. It gets in and it really is a clot buster. It's, it dissolves the clot in the stroke. Okay. So if somebody comes in, they have a lot of symptoms immediately. So we used to think stroke happened right away, that all the damage happened right away. And they do have a lot of symptoms right away. But it turns out that there's a lot there's a little bit of damage initially but around that damage there's a large area of what we call hypoperfusion or poor blood flow and that area that's not getting enough blood flow is kind of like stunned tissue it's not getting enough blood flow to work so those neurons are not dead yet but they don't have enough blood to to function so they're they're starving but not right yeah okay so they they hang out but they don't do anything and that's called the ischemic penumbra so well that eventually it will eventually die die if you don't do anything but it depends on the mechanism of stroke how quickly it will die okay but if you do nothing it it might die but you if you dissolve the clot you can restore blood flow to that area okay and it'll get better. Now, whatever deficits are due to that little core damage, that might not improve immediately, but whatever was due to low blood flow or the penumbral tissue, those deficits will resolve as soon as you restore blood flow. So 
there was a lot of excitement about treating stroke, so I decided I wanted to be a stroke neurologist, which I kind of wanted and knew I wanted to do anyway. But they started like stroke units to just treat stroke. So the other thing that happened is people started developing imaging to look at this area of ischemic penumbras to identify who had a big ischemic penumbra that they would benefit the most from treatment versus if the brain tissue is all dead, there's no point in giving TPA or doing something that might have some risks. So before this, we have no clue how to look in the brain and see which areas are receiving right. poor blood flows. So what, what technique came about to so do that? So it's called diffusion and perfusion imaging. So diffusion-weighted imaging could show you the area of infarct within minutes of, of stroke infarct. It could tell you the areas that are already dead. And then perfusion imaging could tell you the areas that had low blood flow. Okay. So you do those two sequences together and you'd have an idea of how much you could save. Is this like an MRI scan? It's an MRI sequence. Okay. So lots of people started using that in stroke. But it occurred to me you could also use that to figure out brain behavior relationships because one of the problems in studying patients with chronic stroke, and most studies of language in chronic stroke have been done in chronic stroke. And there was a belief you couldn't study acute stroke patients because their language seems to fluctuate a lot in the acute stage. Like some days they'll be good, some days they'll be bad, you can't really make sense of it. So almost all studies at that time were studies of chronic stroke patients who had stable lesions, so a big hole in the head. And so they would say, I'm going to take all the patients I can find who have deficit X, like impaired word comprehension, and then recruit from rehabilitation centers and stroke clubs and things like that, and they'd find people who had impaired word comprehension. And then they'd say, now we want to find, we're going to do CT scans or MRI scans and find out where their lesions are and say, you know, what is the, and then overlap their lesion, figure out which area they have damage that's in common, and say that must be the area that's important for word comprehension. There were lots of problems, but one of the main problems is most people recover after stroke, and most people recover a lot, even if they have a really big stroke. Some people, it just didn't make sense that have a humongous hole in the brain, but they didn't have any deficits. Mm-hmm. And so it's really hard to figure out what part of this, if they, you know, it doesn't seem like any part is because yeah. Was they there any have correlation? Normal. Yeah, you need to correlate like damage size right. to uh, some sort of disability. So it didn't always work. The other problem was if you do that sort of thing, that kind of study, what you found was the areas that are just most commonly infarcted in the first infarcted place. Infarcted in really big strokes. Okay. So it turned out when people did it, they always found the insula was the most important for every deficit. Yeah. And is it that right by the MCA path? Yes. Okay. It's, yeah. it's the, the area that's, if you occlude the MCA, especially the proximal MCA that gets both the inferior and the superior division, you always get insular damage. Okay. So I said, you know, but if you could study patients at the acute stage and you really could figure out what was going on in the brain, you knew you could... You'd study them before all this reorganization or recovery, figure out what parts of the brain were damaged and what parts were hypoperfused. You'd have an idea of what was going on 
what parts were really responsible for their deficit. And maybe some of that fluctuation we see is because there's changes in blood flow in the brain. I hypothesize that then if you have poor perfusion of an area, it'll cause a deficit. But if you reperfuse that area, it'll recover. And that would suggest that area is really, truly critical for that function. Yeah, so a loss, a loss of function and a recovery, recovery or a gain of function. Right. Okay. So then that would mean that area is really important for that function. So that's what my first grant was on, was looking at both left hemisphere stroke in particular language deficits. I looked at naming. And I said, you know, I've studied naming for a long time, and there's, it's a very complex task, actually, naming. Just naming a picture of a cup requires a lot of things, because you have to recognize the picture, you have to know what, what cupness is, you know, what yeah, makes right. a cup a cup, you know, as opposed to a bowl. <laughs> um, and then you have to retrieve the sound of the word cup, how it's pronounced, then you have to articulate it. And all of those things can be individually impaired. And we, I predicted that there would probably be separate areas of the brain that were critical to each of those components, and that we might be able to find those areas in left hemisphere stroke by looking at areas that are damaged and hypoperfused, and which areas were reperfused. Mm-hmm. We did that, and then in right hemisphere stroke, I was looking mostly at neglect. So looking at different types of hemispatial neglect and... This is the idea that people with that type of damage ignore parts of physical space, right? So if they right. have like, they'll just neglect the left side of their body or even the left side of the world. Right, right. right. What we found by doing this, studying neglect in these patients and studying their lesions, is that people with more dorsal lesions in, in kind of the dorsal visual pathway which is important for knowing where things are in space, have a particular kind of neglect where they don't pay attention to things on the left side with respect to their body. Um, so they can't, you, you show them a, a picture and they don't describe anything on the left side of the picture. And people with more ventral lesions and like temporal cortex, the ventral stream of processing, neglect the left side of individual stimuli irrespective of where it is with respect to their body. Mm. So they might look at this, find us online at bradenpodcast.com and read it as (laughs) wind us line at rain, you know, so they miss individual parts of each of these components. Or like if they saw a car in the left side of the field of vision, they would recognize it, but only see that object is in the left field so they can recognize it, but then neglect one part, like half of that. Okay. Yeah. And even if it's in the right field, they would neglect the left part of it. You would think the visual stream is important for recognizing things irrespective of where they are in space. So... Okay, so it sounds like you're able to then now you're linking these human deficits and their very acute brain functions within what we believe, you know, would be the function of that brain region in the right. in real time. Okay. Right. I mean, in the animal, in people that work with animals, the ability to like inactivate and then turn back on or right. do a gain of function, that's like the bread and butter of the field. Right. It's very, we don't do it in humans because it's unnatural. And, uh, but I mean, naturalistically, things like this do happen. Yeah. So it seems exciting to have a patient to 
yeah. be able to ask those kinds of questions. Could we, is there any other, um, I guess, kinds of research that you have gained interest in since you've, along the ways? So, yeah, for a long time I studied mostly language and neglect, and then studying the right hemisphere patients did make me very interested in some of the other deficits that they have. The families would say, well, you know, I can live with their not paying attention to the left, but they just don't seem to be, to care anymore about me or my feelings or, um, you know, I told my husband I had breast cancer and he said, uh, pass the peas, you know, and I said, did you hear what I said? He said, oh, you said you have breast cancer. They don't typically show much responsiveness even to things that happen to themselves. Like they often get put in nursing homes because they don't seem to care. They don't care what they're doing. They don't seem to, even they don't care about their own, they may be plegic on one side, not be able to move the left side of their body. And at first they they deny that they can't move it. They'll say, well, you know, it's, I can move it. I'm just not going to right now. That's anosognosia. But then they go through what's called anisodiaphoria, which is, yeah, well, it doesn't move, but it doesn't really matter to me. You know, I didn't really need that left side anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also have this complete lack of empathy for their spouses. And so I decided to start looking at that. Yeah. And Did there's you... a lot of stuff on empathy now anyway and sort of normal controls. And so we're so that's one thing we're looking at now. Could we talk a little bit about how empathy would be encoded in the brain or what uh, – or maybe just we could even talk sure. about it psychologically, what it is and like yeah. why, <laughs> why well, would it go away? There's two yeah. components of empathy. One is emotional contagion, which is very basic. Kids have it. Even like babies will cry when their mom is unhappy. Dogs are like little bags of emotional contagion. You know, like <laughs> that's why we like them. I think they they wag their tails when you're happy, and they they are very unhappy when you're unhappy, and you know, lots of animals have empathy. And then the second component is affective perspective taking, and that's really takes is more higher level, more adult level. You have to, it's making inferences about how another person feels based on how you would feel in that situation. So it- If I were to tell you a story about something terrible happening to me and you right. being like, oh, I feel, I'm sorry, you know, exactly. feeling bad about it. Exactly, I would, okay. I would, it would be, I would know that you are angry about that because I would be angry if I were yeah. in your Putting situation. Putting yourself in their shoes. shoes. And, yeah. Okay. So you can test both of those. We've been testing the perspective taking really by doing exactly that, either reading stories to them about people in emotional situations um, and asking them, you know, how does this person feel? And it's basically a multiple choice task. Emotional contagion is harder because they don't express emotions very well. And you want to separate out, is it that he doesn't feel the emotion or he doesn't express the emotion? So we've been using skin conductance response. They used to call it galvanic skin response, Mm -hmm. which is not controllable. It's just autonomic response. So people, when they're angry or frightened or happy or anything, change an emotion, you have a skin conductance response to that. We have been just having stroke patients play roulette 
because that's a very simple thing that you can win or lose, um, mm-hmm. and it doesn't take a lot of cognitive, you know, even attention or short-term memory or anything else to know somebody would be happy if they won or sad if they lost. Yeah. And we measure skin conductance response. We also measure whether they can judge whether the person's happy or sad or not. Um, and it's fascinating that lesions in what's often considered the social cognition network, which is kind of prefrontal, medial prefrontal cortex, orbital frontal cortex, anterior insula, anterior cingulate, and temporal pole, people have lesions in that network, um, are both impaired at perspective taking, so they can't, they are very poor at answering questions about you know, people and their emotional stories and videos. But they also have impaired skin conductance response, um, particularly the in um, orbital frontal cortex and the anterior insula. They have very little skin conductance response if they win or lose or if their partner wins or lose when they're watching mm-hmm. somebody else. Whereas normal controls have the same skin conductance response if if I win or if I watch you win, mm-hmm. my skin conductance response would be the same. Okay. But they have almost none. So it's mirrored both in the brain activity and then in that autonomic yeah. response which you're measuring in the skin conductance. Yes. Yeah. Furthermore, they can't judge if they're happy or sad or if the other person's happy or sad. They rate them. There's no difference in their rating on a Likert scale from 0 to 7 mm-hmm. for wins versus losses. They just randomly give like ones or sevens, two, six, and they they honestly can't tell. And you ask them, well, do you do you know how to play roulette? No. Yeah, you, you know that person just you you understand they just won, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you usually feel happy when you win? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and you know I think. Part of it is maybe we feel happy. The reason we know we feel happy and we know we feel sad is because we have these autonomic responses. You know, that, you know people talk about there's chemistry between these two people and that's how they know they, they are attracted to each other. Maybe it really is like a, mm-hmm. a, a chemical response. Um, yeah. that, that's how we know we have emotions. And if you're lacking that that chemical response, that autonomic response, we we don't even know if we're happy or sad. Mm-hmm. I, I just am interested if you have personal hobbies or things that you do outside of science or any kinds of... Oh, a lot. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> well, I run I every morning. Um, I run... I have run a, marathons. I don't run a lot of races anymore, but um, I ride horses. Uh, oh, I do? live on a horse farm and... Oh, cool. Um, yeah. And I just climbed Kilimanjaro with my daughter. Really? Um, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Was that, did I take a lot of practice to get up to that? Not really. Or? Since I do running and okay. horseback riding and things, we didn't. Wow. It's really Congratulations. Fun. That's awesome. Did, yeah. uh, with your daughter too, does she do that? Did you? Yeah, she's very, she does every, she does even more horseback riding and running than I do. She still runs marathons. Someday you could take a horse up Kilimanjaro. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they don't think they'd like it. <laughs> um, so do you have anything else you'd like to like add or any other kind of like thing related to science or your research that you feel like you would like to talk about? Or No, this has been fantastic. Really fun to talk to you all. Cool. Are you, well, thank you so much for talking about this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Cool.
Thanks for listening. If you would like to learn more about the science or scientists that you heard on today's episode, head on over to our website, brainpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or at brainpodcast on Twitter. The music that you heard at the beginning of today's episode was by the artist Jade Statues, and the music playing right now is by the artist Remember. Both of these are on the Dream Catalog label, which you can check out at dreamcatalog.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.